welcome to the people of the covenant i'm your host brian bowers and here with me is dennis robbie what up (laughs) how you doing man good so you got your coffee absolutely yeah gotta start out with that latte that's right that's right well i don't have a latte but we have a lot to talk about (laughs) (laughs) Uh, today yeah today we're going to continue um to discuss the issue of critical race theory its effect upon the church and in our culture in general and uh so we're going to cover a lot of detail we're going to try to uh, paint a clear picture as to what the concerns are and uh maybe share some of our experience um, regarding the issues centered around race as well. So without further ado, uh, Dennis, I'm going to turn it over to you, my friend. Okay. Well, let me just uh, very quickly, this is our second session that we're doing on this, on this topic. Our first one, uh, if you guys got a chance to listen to that, that was just kind of a introduction, general conversation, maybe more of just our, our general comments that we wanted to make based on the issue, um, our uh, concerns that that we see. And uh, we'll talk more about that also in the sessions going forward. But uh, today we want to look at a little bit more of the historical context of critical race theory, Uh, as much as we understand it, as much as we were familiar with it, uh, maybe give more of just a big picture layout uh, of this concept and this, uh, and this issue. So what I wanted to do is just simply start out with the basics, uh, basic phrase that racism exists and has always existed. I think yeah. we can all agree with that racism. Now we have to be careful here, obviously in our modern culture. And if you guys listen to our first, our first session, we talked about proper definition of terms, because racism has been defined as to what it actually means. But in the classic traditional understanding of what racism is in the, we would say, the biblical sin of racism, it has always existed. And I think it's safe to say that it will always exist in this sinful world. People are always going to be sinful Uh, from that perspective. People are going to prefer their tribe over the next tribe. Uh, I think that's a fairly uh, safe statement to make. So my main, I guess, point in saying that is I just, I don't want anyone to think that we're being naive or something like that. We're, 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 I don't think we are. We, we obviously recognize sin and our job is to call it for what it is. Cause I think that's what scripture calls us to do. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's just an important distinction to make, an important um, emphasis to outline. So what I wanted to do for, again, to look at a big picture perspective on all this is go back to the book Cynical Theories. We made reference to it multiple times, read a couple statements from it, and um, I rely heavily on their information because I think these these two scholars have uh, – even though they're not they're not believers, um, they're yeah. not approaching this from a Christian worldview. I would say in some way they're stealing from our worldview, right? Uh, to uh, <laughs> and that's how where all truth comes issues. from. That's where all truth comes from. Absolutely. 
Um, but they have been extremely helpful in um, in their analysis of this uh, whole issue and the issue of critical theory uh, as a whole. So let me what I'm going to do is just read read a couple things and then we can talk about it and uh, and go from there. So they, they begin their chapter on critical theory by saying critical race theory is at root an American phenomenon. So thoroughly is this the case that although its ideas have been used outside the United States for some time, they are often highly flavored by U.S. racial history. And then they write, critical race theory holds that race is a social construct that was created to maintain white privilege and white supremacy. We've we've talked about that in the previous session. We don't need to go into a whole lot of detail on, on defining things. This idea originated long before postmodernism with W.E.B. Du Bois, who argued that the idea of race was being used to assert biological explanations of differences that are social and cultural in order to perpetuate the unjust treatment of racial minorities, especially African-Americans. So they're looking at here early American history, early um how do we want to say it? I guess the, you know, the, the European migration into America and just that early sure. colonialism of, um, I think, predominantly 1500s to 1800s. That's kind of the time period of, of, of where they're they're focusing on. And their argument is that's really where this whole concept of um, race and thing to view individuals is had its had its fruition yeah or at least began to really um began to really play out in in ideological terms in uh, practical terms with the atlantic slave trade and, and things like that they say there are good reasons to ac- uh, to accept this claim Although some average differences in human populations, such as skin color, hair texture, eye shape, and relative susceptibility to certain diseases, are observably real, and an individual's geographical heritage can be discovered via DNA tests. And then they go on to say, it is not clear why this has been regarded as so significant as to divide people into groups called races. For one thing, biologists don't. Yeah. They talk about biologists talk of populations, which can be identified through genetic markers as having had slightly different evolutionary heritages. Now, we obviously have to say these these uh, these scholars are coming at this from an evolutionary framework. They're they're not coming at this from a we would say biblical creation uh, worldview. So there's going to be differences, obviously, in some of the analysis of how we would view it as uh, as Christians holding a biblical worldview and how they would hold it. They continue. But reducing this to what we usually call race is so often is so often wrong as to be nearly useless in practice. And um, so the bottom line is they talk they're trying to figure out, okay, where does this whole concept come from? Just even the whole concept of race. Now, we talked about the whole concept of race on the last session and. Um, I, I mean, I have issues with cla- with cl- that specific classification. I don't think it's an overly helpful biblical classification. Um, and maybe here, I mean, we can take a little bit and just talk about the whole concept of evolution as a whole, because I think that's helpful to make that distinction, because 
even though, I mean, we have to be careful, obviously, that we're not being um, we're not being anachronistic here and trying to push, you know, trying to push our our understanding of evolution now into back then, because we know right. that evolution as a system, you know, developed a little bit later, mid to late, you know, 1800s. And but there is a sense in which evolution really contributed to this concept of dividing humans and uh, beginning to establish higher, uh, how do I want to say it, viewing some people as higher than others. And this especially became true in the early 20th century, with where I would say evolution really demonstrated its colors of being a dangerous death driven worldview and ideology mm. i mean we see that with hitler we see that with the soviet union with stalin with um with uh, lenin with 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 all of those guys with uh um all of the different atrocities that all of the different holocausts shall we say yeah. that that occurred i mean they were very heavily influenced by an evolutionary mindset a division of the quote-unquote human races that was not biblical was not healthy and was frankly flat out wrong <laughs> um yeah yeah definitely yeah I, I what immediately comes to mind um for me is the whole eugenics movement which mm. actually really started back in the late 1800s um, with the English scientist by the name of Francis Galton, um, who was a cousin of Charles Darwin, as a matter of fact. And the, it, as many probably know at this point, eugenics movement really was the, the foundation and kind of the, the, the underpinnings for Margaret Sanger's approach to family control but through uh, parent, Planned Parenthood. Uh, it's interesting that this whole conversation that we're having now in the in this in modern time has kind of brought us back to you know the subject of abortion and, and where it got its start. Um, so yeah I find it very interesting that you know for the longest time, not many people, so it seems, really understood where Planned Parenthood came from. And, you know, Margaret Sanger was instrumental in that. And, and you know, the fact that uh, her idea of um, her contribution to society really was racist. <laughs> it was to eliminate. And she was very open about it, too. She wasn't oh, trying no. to hide it. Oh yeah, she's there's books that you can buy even to this day that very plainly outline what her what her goal was. Yeah, so yeah, yeah I just wanted to, to you know to interject that at, because I think that it's important for us to understand that when we consider this subject and when we consider um the issue of abortion, it's it's kind of hard to reconcile our concern for all people. Um, especially as it pertains to to black people, and um, ignore um, the subject of abortion. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's um, it's sad to to make those connections too, because, like you said, the the effect that abortion has had on the black population, the black community, is uh, is is um, is crazy. It, it is it is hurtful to to see that, but yet at the same time, at the same time, you have so many in the in the black in the black community that are buying in to these types of ideologies that in a sense laid the foundation for the destruction you can almost say uh, of the black culture through things like abortion dennis it really has and you know it's (laughs) in discussing the subject with with other people what i'm finding is that the the greatest challenge to having an honest dialogue about it is that it seems as though most, I won't say most, but many people, um, they think politically first um, before thinking about it in concept in terms of what is true, what is beneficial, and most certainly what is God-honoring. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Well, and it's what what's sad with that too is before even just strictly staying on the on the political uh, realm, there's just such a misunderstanding because we know that the politi- the politicians that scream the loudest of how they're for the black community, we know at the end of the day they're actually not. Their policies are most hurtful to nope. the black community. Well, that's a whole different conversation in and of itself. Yep. Um. Okay, so let's continue. Another um, in the book, another uh, thing they say. While other factors may have contributed, race and racism, as we understand them today, probably arose as social constructions made by Europeans to morally justify European colonialism and the Atlantic slave trade. Okay, so I think it's healthy to pause here and recognize that there in in um, there's a lot of truth that's being thrown out. E- equated with critical race theory that stems from an accurate understanding of a the the sins the historical sins of our country we we can all agree with that there is there, there's there, there's uh, in in this issue in this topic there's a lot we can look back at and mourn um, oh yeah so i think that 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 needs to be said we we are i hope People realize that we're not being naive here. We're, we're not. We're not trying to just say, you know, we're not rewriting history. We're not. Um, there's a lot of fault to be placed on on many in on many people. Many. I mean, uh, the church's response early on was not great. Um, yeah. There was. Um, I think there's much misunderstanding of how the church approached it, or at least how th- how certain reformed theologians approached it. They are to blame. They are wrong. Their reasoning was not healthy. But at the same time, they weren't they they weren't just you know these blind racists um, that just um, so 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 there there there's a great need. I guess my point is there's a great need for healthy balance in this discussion when we look at it historically. Because Definitely. if you just simply, if you just simply look at early America and say bunch of racists, throw it all out, 
that's not helpful. That's not helpful at all, because, I mean, look, I'm going to say it. The American experience uh, experiment, I should say, the American experiment was a beautiful thing from the perspective of establishing a nation based on God's principles. Yep. Um, but at the same time, it came with massive flaws, came with sins, came with sinful people doing sinful things. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very important point. I think you brought up, Dennis, is that God has been able to do the miraculous through the agency of fallen people. And I think that's I think that's important to keep that in mind when we discuss, you know, a subject as complex as this. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, there, there's obviously, and they even make a connection in the book here to a, to a religious, um, religious understanding, a specific religious understanding that contributed color-based prejudice. I mean, they, um, they, they talk about the, uh, the, the, the flaws of a Christian perspective that contributed to some of this. And, um, and yeah, so we're, there's, there's plenty of blame that can be put um, and, and rightfully so, uh, much, much fault can be, can be stated there. Mm-hmm. They continue to skipping a little bit further here. They talk about the earliest contributors to the effort to challenge the assumptions underlying racism were former American slaves, including Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass in the 19th century, Later in the 20th century, influential race critics like W.E.D. Boyce and Winthrop Jordan set, set out the history of color-based racism in the United States. And they write, they, they say the work of these scholars and reformers should have been sufficient to expose racism for the ugly and unfounded ideology that it is. But belief in the racial supremacy of whites survived nevertheless. This was especially extreme and long-lived in the American South, where slavery remained an essential part of the economy until Abraham Lincoln's emancipation of the slaves in 1863. Um, Jim Crow laws, racial redlining, legal segregation survived the longest, persisting into the mid-1960s and in some ways beyond, even after the victories of the civil rights movement under Martin Luther King Jr. or Martin Luther King Jr. when discrimination on the grounds of race became illegal and attitudes about race changed remarkably fast in historical terms these long-standing narratives didn't disappear critical race theory was designed to pick at highlight and address them so just simply looking at that discussion there i would say that that's a noble task. It is a noble task to look at the, the, the sad history, racial history in this country, to look at um, racial supremacy, white supremacy, and the effects that it had, um, and to try to understand how best to address that. Yeah. That's a noble task, right? I mean, we, we would agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, we, I, I, I think we as Christians were called <clears throat> to, to be the moral voice of, of, of the, of our society. We're called to, to look at the sins and to call it out. 
Um, but the key is we are called to bring God's truth onto that, onto that issue, onto that sin. And that's really the key. And, and I think what, well, what we are arguing here is critical race theory is not that approach. It is not (laughs) a godly approach to try to examine the racial issues, the, the, the racial history in this country and how to best address it. Critical yeah. race theory is not the solution. It is a dangerous ideology that actually takes us even further from the solution. And that that's really, that's where the key lies in, in, um, in, in the, in, in, in our issue with it. Yeah, Dennis, this is, I guess, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why we're even approaching this subject at all, Um, because no one's no one's looking to ignore the history that that is unfolded in America. It's just that, as with anything, when you diagnose something incorrectly, you're going to apply solutions that are going to be let's just say less than successful, <laughs> less yeah. than successful. And in, in our case as Christians, um, potentially sinful. So yeah. And, and we're starting to see the outer workings of that these days. And thankfully there's many people that have entered into this discussion, if you will, but um, it does seem as though the more, individuals that seek to approach the subject biblically the better absolutely yeah so the the last thing i wanted to mention again just from a big picture historical perspective uh they go on in the book to talk about uh specifically the origin of critical race theory as a system as a concept uh they write Critical race theory formally arose in the 1970s through the critical study of law as it pertains to issues of race. The word critical here means that its intention and methods are specifically geared toward identifying and exposing problems in order to facilitate revolutionary political change. And the one person I wanted to mention specifically is Derek Bell. So they write the late Derek Bell, the first tenured African-American professor at Harvard Law School is often regarded as the progenitor of what we generally call critical race theory. Having derived the name by inserting race into this area of specialty, critical legal theory. Bell was a materialist who is perhaps best known for having brought critical methods to bear on understanding civil rights and the discourses surrounding them. Bell was an open advocate of historical revisionism and is best known for his interest convergence theses described in his book. Uh, They listed here. And and what I want to highlight is right here. They say this thesis holds, this thesis holds that whites have allowed rights to blacks only when it was in their interest to do so. A dismal view that denies the possibility that any moral progress had been made 
since the Jim Crow era. This is so exaggerated of his intent. Bell states this explicitly in his 1987 book, And We Are Not Saved. He writes, progress in American race relations is largely a mirage, obscuring the fact that whites continue consciously or unconsciously to do all in their power to ensure their dominion and maintain their control. And this is where I think the 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 real danger lies in um, in this perspective, because this perspective doesn't bring a solution to the table. No, it doesn't bring any kind of conclusion to this discussion. Um, it is not helpful because at its core. This ideology states that the problem is whiteness, period. That, that is the problem, <laughs> and you can never get away from it. And, and that is where we as Christians need to stand up and say, wait a minute, <laughs> something massive has been missed here. And that is the gospel, which brings together all tribes and ethnicities and everything. Um, and, and that's where I think one of the reasons why we're so passionate in responding to this because of statements like what I just read. I mean, when, when you make a statement of, as a white person, you are unconsciously doing everything in your power to ensure that you know, you have the most amount of control. And if that means that you're going to unconsciously um, suppress the blacks around you, then, you know, that that's all there is to so it. Be it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. That's an incredible statement to digest in 2021. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I when I think about. I mean, I'm, I've been around for a while. <laughs> and, At least 200 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I, I saw it all. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's amazing to, to even try to think about that concept logically. And yet here we are, you know, I mean, this is the kind of, this is the kind of teaching that's taking place in, I mean, for in colleges, it's been taking place for decades, but now it's moving into um, K through 12, mm. which is really frightening. Um, and what's sad, too, is and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you'll get into some of this later on when you talk about just your experience. Um, but what's sad is, I mean, even in the modern context, we see this so clearly with with the whole with the whole discussion that's being held on, you know, police shootings and, and white police shooting blacks and, and that whole discussion. I mean, I watched uh, one of the recent, uh, one of the recent shootings that happened, uh, the, the mother, just the mother, I think it was the mother of the, of the, of the man who got shot was talking about how, pretty much saying how this is what they want. This is what they want. They just want to justify as many blacks that they can shoot. And, you know, just pretty much saying that, mm. that it's, 
pretty much clearly hinting at the fact that every white police officer is just a racist. They just want to shoot as many black people as they can get. And, you know, that, that and they will do anything to try to to try to uh, the, the system, the, the 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 police system will do anything just to to make that happen. And I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. You know, I, I just I mean, if you want to talk about being naive. I mean, that is a very naive statement that has no evidence behind it whatsoever. The only thing it has behind it is pure emotion. It is pure emotion. I mean, I mean, there are, yes, there are bad situations. There are bad judgment calls. I'm sure, I, I'm sure there are racist police officers that, that need to be, you know, held accountable for, um, when that sin, uh, manifests itself and, you know, and, 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 uh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we don't want to in any way try to, um, I mean, I, as a white man, I don't want to in any way unconsciously, you know, uh, just deny all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a half joke, but you know, um, but, um, but, I don't even believe in the unconsciousness, but that's a whole nother issue. Um, <laughs> but, but I think it's just, it's so unhelpful to make statements like that. It doesn't help the conversation. It doesn't move us forward because any conversation needs to happen in the context of what, what is, what are the facts? What is the evidence? What is, what is the context? I mean, and, and I think the biggest issue with critical race theory, just looking at this brief historical analysis, is it pretty much at its core, is sta- it states that no progress has been made. We yeah, just went a- from uh, – uh, let me just make this one comment. We just yeah. went from vivid, open slavery to now everything is just hidden in the hearts. That's where we went from. And that is so – far from the truth yeah um i mean i'm sorry when i look at how many successful blacks there are in in all different arenas all different institutions i just that statement has no basis whatsoever even just from i mean there are thousands tens of thousands of blacks that make way more money than i do (laughs) can we just say that Uh, you know (laughs) and i'm not saying i make a lot of money uh but you know what i mean um yeah they make more than i do too (laughs) and when you have people like kobe bryant that is a millionaire making such I don't even know what word to use. Like, you're talking such, about LeBron James. I'm, I'm sorry. Right? I'm sorry. Okay. LeBron James. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. LeBron James. Yeah. When you have people like that, that make millions of money making such unhelpful, mm. <laughs> baseless comments that doesn't help, that doesn't help the conversation. And, 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 and in some ways those comments are made because of a because of an ideology that has influenced them an ideology that has influenced the mainstream culture the black culture um as as a whole that it just 
yeah, I just, the, the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, it doesn't help the conversation. It doesn't yeah. help us move forward. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> well, that's pretty much all I had just from the perspective of like yeah. big picture, you know, historical um, sure. analysis. Again, I, I, I'm relying heavily on, on what I read. It's not, you know, not in any way at all, my area of expertise, <laughs> but, um, I think the, the, you know, specifically the cynical theories book uh, and, and many others, I think these, these scholars have done a great job just, you know, looking at a big picture perspective on this and, and a healthy critique. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Issue. I mean, it's a very, it's a very broad topic to begin with and, yeah. and complex, um, because human nature and sin is involved <laughs> and Absolutely. it only gets more complex when time goes by. You know, we have decades, centuries of, um, history to try to, um, I'm just going to use the term, try to unravel. And, um, and that's, I think that's why it's all the more important for us to bring scripture to bear upon this because I mean, God understands us better than we understand ourselves. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dennis, this is a good segue, you know, in terms of um, LeBron James and, and his approach and his angle to, you know, addressing this kind of subject, all of us have some sort of framework that we look through in terms of understanding this particular subject of race I'm no different. And um, just like Dennis, I am not a scholar by any stretch of the imagination, which is all the more reason, in my humble opinion, why we really, I think everyone (laughs) should approach their conclusions very carefully regarding. Yeah, but you're the only black guy that I know. So that makes you a scholar (laughs) in my eyes. (laughs) That's right. You're not the only black. That's right. That's right. You know, too. (laughs) <laughs> I know too, exactly. Now, nah. nah, Dennis and that I that makes go back. me real. Oh, that makes man. me official. Yeah, yeah. Now that you're you're part of the, um, you've been uh, benighted into the uh, um, people of color circle. That's uh, right. As a Slavic. Uh, maybe, maybe we can elaborate on that at a later time. But I'm <laughs> in. I am yeah. in. I'm in the brotherhood. Absolutely. There ain't no one eighth anymore. I'm not one eighth anymore. I'm in. No, man. Fully. No, man. You're a full 100%. Probably more so than me. <laughs> you know, we could probably make an argument for that. <laughs> so, my experience with race, um, it, you know, it's interesting. Throughout this whole era of this subject coming to the forefront, you know, I've, I've asked myself, Many, many times, you know, okay, what, what is my experience and exposure to this particular issue as a black man <laughs> who was, you know, who grew up in the, in the eighties. And, you know, obviously I don't pretend to speak for everybody, but I think I've had a, a rather diverse experience growing up. I mean, I grew up in a a rather small, I'm not going to call it a rural city or borough. It is a, a borough, but it is a rather small, closely knit um, area in, in, in Pennsylvania where everyone got along. I mean, 
and I, when I say everyone, I'm talking black, white, all kinds of um, different ethnicities. We got along. Our our city was very much. Um, we had a culture that was centered around mm-hmm. our our schools, our sports, and I, I think because we were so small, I think that that in and of itself helped us to to not be focused in on each other's differences, which seems to be the um, the goal of the day. <laughs> but we just we just we just simply went to school together, we learned together, and we had fun together. Sometimes too much fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, especially as I was a little kid, I grew up in, in a rather small, um, closely knit city. And uh, by the time I got to you know, high school, early high school, actually we had moved, we moved out to the suburbs. And once again, it was a very diverse culture. I mean, I had friends of just about every ethnicity you could think of. Um, black, white, Jewish. Yeah, but not Slavic. I not, bet not Slavic. You know, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to fish through my um, my memory to see if there was anyone that was Slavic. I don't think there was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're good. There is now, so you're good. <laughs> it, yeah, I'm in good shape now. And, you know, it's interesting, Dennis, that you bring that up because, and not to jump around, but in my lifetime, I have found that the I've had a, a unique opportunity to become, to amass friends of all types, whether it's age, whether it's ethnicity, it's, it's never been a barrier for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what I would specifically attribute that to. Um, but growing up in high school in the suburbs, I mean, it was very different for me because, quite frankly, um, we were we weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination. But I had many friends that were, <laughs> um, so it was not uncommon for me to spend the night at, you know, my friend's house, and I mean, in you know areas that that were a lot more affluent than the one that I come from for sure. Um and there was never an issue. There's just I mean And if you if you don't mind saying could you say like what years we're talking about here? I think yeah, that will talk- be helpful to contribute to again this discussion. Absolutely Dennis. Yeah, we're talking about the uh late 70s, early 80s. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about late 70s, early 80s. That's 1870, um, right? yeah i mean and and so we're coming out of this time period where you know i was born in the 60s when a lot of pivotal change has taken place socially politically um in our country and as far as I can see, within a short period of time, you know, from the 60s to the 80s, we apparently had made such progress where I lived a life where race really did not affect me, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. I mean, we always talked about it, um, and of course, there were situations that unfolded that reminded us that 
obviously race still existed. I mean, uh, racism still existed. But even back then, Dennis, I did not see it as this pervasive issue that affected our country dramatically. And I can remember, you know, watching Roots by Alex Haley on TV, which was a, um, I mean, just a riveting series, uh, an attempt to kind of recapture some of the history that perhaps um, at that time was not mainstream in our culture. Uh, so it was a, a series of, um, it was a TV series that, that, that everyone watched. And at that time, you know, it's, it's amazing how if you spend considerable amount of time um, looking at this particular, particular subject it can affect you if you allow it to and during that time period when when roots was was big you could sense that there was a little bit of tension in our culture but once again it did not it did not cause us to become enemies with with our friends that had different skin color than us um, so we got along i mean I, I i mean that's as simplistic as i could put it in the back of some of our minds I mean, we did, you know, we, we were always told that, you know, that there is racism out there. And I can understand it, you know, to some degree, but to allow it to formulate how you go about living in our country, um, that was never, never a thought of mine. I mean, I, I had, it just wasn't an issue. Yeah. So what, um, um, what I don't know if you ever thought about this question, but what would you say? What would you say to those people who might who might uh, say that? Well, therefore, you know, you might not have the the best perspective on this, or um, you know, due to due to the context in which you grow up, and let's say you're not, um, you might mm-hmm. not be viewing this correctly, or you know, you don't understand everything that some others might have gone through, let's say. Well, yeah, um, to a certain degree, I would agree. Um, To a certain degree, I would, I would say I may not have the same experiences um, as, as others that, that actually did experience racism. But as, but I think that's the reason why this subject has to be approached very carefully because um, we live in a, a country with 380 million people, and for that reason alone, I think it's very difficult to uh, summarize the state of a country purely on the experiences of the individual. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I mean, would you say that definitely in today's context— so there is definitely a sense in which, you know, maybe, maybe a hundred years ago, or maybe even 50 years ago, you could look at, I, I don't know if I, you know, if I have my dates right, but let's just say, mm-hmm. you know, you, you could look at it and say, well, experience plays a huge role in this because you have a whole, uh, a whole ethnicity, a, a large number of people that are experiencing the same thing. So, you know, you can make a much, uh, much, uh, 
you can make a much better argument from that perspective of of bringing in the experience and letting that guide a certain maybe even political uh let's say agenda maybe but just as i'm thinking through it in today's world that just doesn't make sense because again we have made such progress i think in this country as as a, as a whole that to simply base something on experience is is not helpful at all. It doesn't progress the conversation like we talked earlier. Uh, I mean, would you would you agree that with that assessment, just the difference between obviously a, a past perspective of experience and now? Absolutely, yes. And the key word there is progress. A lot of times when you mention the um, what is obvious, and that is the progress that has been made from the 1800s to now, um, it's met with some animosity. And I think the reason why is because this subject is a very emotional subject, and I think people have a tendency to want to discuss it experientially as opposed to, I'm just going to say it, analytically or even factually. We have, we, we can point to tangible evidence. Um, that progress has been made in our, in our country. But a lot of times we don't get to the point of discussing that progress in any, any type of meaningful fashion because we're still dealing with the immediate situation that took place last week with the police yeah. or, or the, the example that, that we saw in the news a month ago. Yeah. I mean, it, and these particular situations are always going to take place. They're always going to take place. Only time is, is necessary for them to, to, to unfold. And because they're going to continuously unfold, we're always going to find ourselves discussing those individual situations without looking at the, the larger picture. Mm. And, I think there's some that want to bring the conversation into the larger picture um, because that's the only way that you can really assess what's going on accurately. Yeah. Yeah. And one one thing I thought of, yeah. One thing I thought of as you were talking is just, uh, you know, letting, letting momentary acts in mainstream media drive our uh, understanding or perspective or letting, you know, that bring out our uh, emoting, um, as it's modernly called. Um, what the dangers in that is, you're only looking at one example. You're only looking at one thing that happened, one event. But for that one event, how many other opposite events are there? I mean, I'm talking specifically in terms of for every for every black man that got shot by the police, how many whites got shot, but more so how many blacks got helped by the police, right? Like yeah. th- those two things, like mainstream media, the, 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 they ain't talking about that, right? <laughs> they, they don't want to talk about that. Uh, no, and, and it, it's difficult to even speak 
to that particular statement that you just made without being honest about our media at this point. Um, and because the moment that you start talking about the media, once again, people have a tendency to think, okay, here, here comes the next, um, political jab. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that the media was never designed to drive policy, but that's exactly what they do now. And people don't seem to realize that what, what we're digesting on a daily basis regarding news media and the various outlets does not necessarily represent what is taking place throughout our country, but it is affecting it. It's affecting how we view our country. So because when you, when you watch, when you watch mainstream media, you are not, you are not being given information and helped to examine that information in light of common sense, logic, reason. That's not what, that's the way it should be, right? That's the way it, that, that is the function of media. Yep. Um, but you are given information that is specifically designed to force you to think in a certain narrative, in, in a certain ideological perspective. You're, I mean, to put it, to put it, to put it bluntly, you're being brainwashed. That, that's all there is to it. Um, and there are very few, very few media outlets left that actually do their job the way they're supposed to. And we can, you know, we can give a shout out to Epic Times. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I listen to them and they're, they're great. I mean, they, they are great in how they try to just do their job of reporting and that's it. Um, well, I'm not even going to tell you how I curate my news these days. Um, it's somewhat shameful, and I'm just going to leave that alone. <laughs> yeah. But I got to give a shout out. You know, my, my boy Roman from the Epic Times, you know, I, I listen his I listen to his uh, his briefings that he brings out. That's that's my boy there. <laughs> just saying. Just... Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, let's let's move into. um what I want to do in the remaining time that we have is I want to do a bit of a case study. This is a difficult – what I want to do is I want to attempt to try to capsulize two eras regarding slavery and the Jim Crow era and what I see as being two drastically different approaches um, to a somewhat common problem. In fact, I would say that the more severe – problem, obviously, was the abolition of slavery um, in the 1800s in comparison to the challenges that continued to exist in the 1960s in the Jim Crow era. And what I want to do, just from a historical standpoint, is I want to just look at the mindset of two, I would say, pivotal historic figures during those particular time periods. I want to kind of I want to compare the approach that Frederick Douglass took to the subject uh, in comparison to Lyndon B. Johnson of all people, uh, the president that took that was that oversaw the uh, the Great Society and many of the social programs in the in the 1960s. So 
I'm going to try to capsulize a lot of history into a short period of time. Please note that this is not meant to be an exhaustive uh, depiction of either one of these men. They, uh, Frederick Douglass has written volumes and volumes of, um, of publications on the subject of slave, slavery and abolition. And of course, um, it would be unfair for me to, to summarize Lyndon B. Johnson's presidency solely um, on the material that I'm going to share today. Um, but I think it does give us kind of an, an inside view of what I would consider to be some very critical differences between their approach. So let me start. Um, I want to start by examining a short portion of a an article that Frederick Douglass wrote. And the name of the article is called What Shall Be Done With the Slaves If Emancipated? And this is an article that was written in 19, I'm sorry, 1862. Uh, it was part of um, what is called the Douglas Monthly. Apparently, he wrote a series of articles during that time period. Um, but I'm going to jump right in here, and I'm going to I'm going to pause at at various spots during um, the reading of this. So bear with me, if you will. So, what shall we we what shall be done with the slaves if emancipated? So I'm going to jump in where it says, this question has been answered and can be answered in many ways. Primarily, it is a question less for man than for God, less for human intellect than for the laws of nature to solve. So, I just want to stop there for just a moment, and Dennis, feel free to to jump in or interject any thoughts. Notice that in this statement, we find, I think, a very important um, acknowledgement on Douglas's part, and that is an, an appeal to God's sovereignty. As we look at the subject of of the abolishment of slavery, it's very obvious that Frederick Douglass looked at that particular issue through the lens of Scripture, at least to some degree, and acknowledged that at the end of the day, this is an issue that God is in control over. So I just want to read a quick passage here that I think is kind of brings this out, and that's in uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, Isaiah 45, verses 7 through 13. So, when Isaiah writes, he says, this is speaking of God. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So, we, we have this account here where God is obviously sovereign over all creation. Verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So here in this particular stretch, um, we see that God is in control over, over the heavens. He is the one that, that saves. Um, he is the one that Causes things to blossom, 
causes things to grow. Verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And I just wanted to read that because I think it captures the the thought that Frederick Douglass makes here. He says, he says, the question has been answered and can be answered in many ways. Primarily, it is a question less for man than for God. And we're going to find that Douglass's approach regarding the subject of the freedom of, of the slaves is it's foundationally based upon God's sovereignty. And this is going to prove to be very important as we move further through this particular letter. Um, I just any want thoughts? to make one, yeah. yeah, I want to make one <laughs> comment that I think is helpful. So there is a sense in which um and I don't know 100% if this is where Frederick Douglass was heading, but um, you can you can let me know. But th- there is a there there is a healthy discussion to be had in this in this issue of what should even be the role of government. Is it even the role of government to to step in and to control issues like this. I mean, I know there's, uh, I'm going to mention a very controversial figure, Douglas Wilson, you know, hopefully nobody's, nobody's shaking um, uh, when I said his name, but uh, he's a a pastor, American pastor who has uh, spoken a lot about cultural issues and, you know, the role of scripture and God and in the public square and things like that. But, you know, he's somewhat famous for making comments on slavery that many consider to be controversial. But uh, when you actually stop and think, which many people uh, should do, but don't do, uh, they are they are helpful. And that is namely that was it even should the federal government even step in? Should they have even stepped in in that situation? Was it even their job to step in and start legislating and controlling that situation? Or should it have been left to the states to naturally work its course and eventually human freedom, which is inherent to the way God has created us, would have prospered and would have would have won the day simply put and and i think from not to get too crazy into history i mean there's a lot that can be said about the civil war and its real intent and you know all kinds of things there and the control of the federal government and things like that but what it has created 
is a mentality in many of our minds that the federal government has the answers. The big government has the answers. If we just bring in more legislation, if we just bring in more policies, more mandates, more laws, whatever, you name it. And I think what what's helpful, um, at least kind of what, what came to my mind as, as, as you were reading, uh, Douglas, here is just the simple concept of um, there are aspects of humanity and that that were never made to be legislated. They weren't made yeah. to, you know, create a government program or government entity to control. Um, and mm-hmm. sin, there's a difference between laws and sins, right? Not not every sin needs to be addressed with a law. <laughs> I think that that's, that's a big concept that people need to understand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And and actually, Dennis, I think Douglas is going to kind of speak to some of the things that you just articulated, actually. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, once again, um, I'm not going to sit here and say that Frederick Douglass had a fully developed understanding of God's sovereignty, and that's what he was attempting to communicate in this particular passage or or, or part of his his article. But nevertheless, it's true. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's 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 true. Yeah, and I mean, and you and I talked about this before, but I mean, you look at some of these figures, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, I mean, some of these early, early, uh, I guess we can say abolitionists to some degree, mm-hmm. um, but they, if you look at their history, they did, they, they don't come from a, what we would say as reformed Christians, they don't come from a very solid theological background or even church context. So we, you know, we, we want to, we understand, like you said, there isn't, you know, we're not saying, I, you're not saying that, you know, here you have a reformed Baptist, who's, uh, <laughs> right, right. you know, clearly bringing in the sovereignty of God uh, into this <laughs> realm. But right. there was a very clear understanding of scriptural truths and scriptural principles that, that operated in that culture at large that I think everybody understood, no matter what your theological convictions were. Um, yeah. And the, the application here I think is unmistakable. I mean, I think that he, he knew that ultimately the, the failure or the, the success of this movement, this change that needed to happen was going to rest squarely upon God. And uh, I think that that's going to express itself even more vividly as we move through this. So he says, primarily it it is a question less for man than for God, less for human intellect than for the laws of nature to solve. It assumes that nature has erred, that the law of liberty is a mistake. So, I mean, he's he's basically, what he's doing here is he's, he's explaining the dignity of man. He's appealing to God as being sovereign and, and that man is made um, in such a way where he has um, dignity, all men. 
So he says, it assumes nature has erred, that the law of liberty is a mistake, that freedom, though a natural want of the human soul, can only be enjoyed at the expense of human welfare, and that men are better off in slavery than they would or could be in freedom, that slavery is the natural order of human relations and that liberty is an experiment. What shall be done with them? So once again, he, he's, he's appealing to, in this section, you know, to the sovereignty of God and the dignity of man, you know, that all men um, were created in such a way that they would have free agency, free agency in the sense of serving their God um, and engaging in the work of their hands um, as an act of worship towards God. Well, I mean, do you mind if I just make one comment too? As a, no, I don't uh, mind. Again, thinking through, not necessarily, uh, not necessarily in light of what he said, but somewhat related. But just the whole concept of I want I wanted to mention it early, uh, earlier, and I forgot. Just the whole concept of that slavery, the concept of slavery, has always been the human experiment. It has always been present in every nationality, ethnicity, uh, I mean, you name it. I, I mean, Genesis 3 and on. <laughs> Absolutely. There has always been an experience of slavery that has existed. And it, and it really, I, I think it's safe to say that it really hasn't, it really wasn't until modern times that there has been a concept of liberty that um, has spread across the whole world. And, and don't get me wrong, slavery exists today in its own forms, mm -hmm. and it's and it's dangerous and disgusting yep. um, in its own forms. I mean, all you have to do is look at the human trafficking um, sin and and you know phenomena the, of, of that. But but I think it's helpful again from a historical analysis. It's helpful to look at this in a balanced approach of slavery has always existed. The, the, um, the, there are, there are it, every, every generation, um, has had its own form, has had its own nuances and details, but, but it's not, it's not like the American slave trade came on the scene and all of a sudden, it's this new thing that just popped out of nowhere, and the whole world's looking at them, going, "What are you doing? You a bunch, you bunch of sinners." That, that's just <laughs> so historically inaccurate, right? I mean, I, yeah, absolutely, Dennis. And you know, the the ironic thing is that it's hard to avoid the reality that Western economics is what enabled much of the existing world to change its its approach um to the subject of slavery i'm just gonna make a quick side note i think there's uh eschatological applications that could be made there but that's for a different day <laughs> it sure is dennis <laughs> <laughs> let me keep going <laughs> so douglas lays out this question and then he responds to his own question with an answer. He says, in, in answering his question, what shall be done with the slaves if emancipated? He says this. He says, our answer is do nothing with them. Mind your business. 
and let them mind theirs. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that is that is astounding to think about. Here you have the ending of slavery taking place and all that that entails. If, if there was ever a time in which a discussion a discussion a meaningful discussion could be if, could could have taken place regarding um what's fair um what's equitable etc it would have been at this particular time period but he says our answer is do nothing with them mind your business and let them mind theirs your doing with them is their greatest misfortune they have been undone by your doings and all they now ask let me repeat that. All they now ask. Now, once again, this is in 1862. All that they now ask and really have need of at your hands is just to let them alone. They suffer by every interference and it succeed best by being let alone. Now, in a moment, I'm going to switch to Lyndon B. Johnson, but I, I just want that to sink in for just a moment. Douglas, at least in this particular periodical, seems to be advocating, just give us our freedom. Just give us our freedom. Um, and as the, this section of the letter started off, acknowledging what takes place, what follows, we're going to leave in God's hands. So. Do you mind if I keep reading the next the next sentence? I actually find really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so he continues. He says the Negro should have been let alone in Africa, let alone when pirates and robbers offered him for sale in our Christian slave markets. More cruel and inhuman than the uh, Mohammedan Mohammedan Mohammedan. Mohammedan slave markets, let alone by courts, judges, politicians, legislators, and slave drivers, let alone altogether. So, so there's a clear acknowledgement on his part of, you know, a systemic sin, a systemic problem that developed. Um, again, we're, we're not trying to be naive mm -hmm. here, right? We're trying to be fair and assured that they were thus to be left alone forever and that they must now make their own way in the world just mm -hmm. the same as any and every other variety of the human family. As colored men, we only ask to be allowed to do with ourselves subject only to the same great laws for the welfare of human society which apply to other men, Jews, Gentiles, barbarians, Scythian. Now, we know that's taken right out of Scripture, right? Those, those, Absolutely. Those categories there they didn't exist in america <laughs> no no <laughs> i mean i saw a barbarian running around uh, the capital uh you some know. people act like him <laughs> yeah um let us stand upon our own legs work with our own hands and eat bread in the sweat of our own brows mm -hmm. I, I just i i think yeah. that is such a great summary of the difference and i'm obviously this is where you're going so i don't want to steal your thunder here um or no, your lightning fine. but um <laughs> but clearly i mean you have a man here who's trying who's trying to bring in scriptural principles absolutely scriptural categories and and apply them to that to that sinful horrific disgusting situation of his day um, 
And I just, I love the way he wrote that. I mean, it's yeah. like you, you know, you, you've done enough with us. <laughs> yeah. You've done enough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and Dennis, he, he doesn't have a, um, he, he, he's not going into this subject with rose colored glasses. He's acknowledging the fact that he knows that they're going to start in a deficit. They, he knows that, that, the the concept of freedom is going to require starting at the at at the start point that God has purpose for them to start at in his sovereign wise and just plan i think those yeah. two three things are very important for us to understand the history of the world is comprised of sinners and the sinned against. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's unfortunately it's built into the fabric of the entire world in which we live. I always found this particular passage to be interesting, Dennis, and you can tell me if I'm being overly simplistic. But in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. In verses 14 and 15, it says, this is talking about, it's talking about God and how he um, gives things to us, gifts, talents, etc., um, for us to put to use um, during the time span that he gives us. But in verses 14 and 15, it simply states, it says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Note, note the very important ownership um, that is outlined there, that everything that we have, Dennis, whether it's a rich man, whether it's a poor man, uh, and anywhere in between, whatever he has comes from God, and it belongs to God, ultimately. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. So I think there's something to be said for this. I think Douglas understood that it was going to be a challenge to make a living in the midst of this particular culture that he found himself in. Yet and still, he says, let us stand upon our own legs. Let us work with our own hands and then let us eat whatever we produce from it. I mean, the simplicity of this to me is astounding, especially as we look at the discussions that are taking place in 2021 at this point. Yeah. Here you have a man coming out of, literally coming out of slavery, experiencing freedom perhaps for the first time in his life, not even understanding fully what he has in his hands. And he makes these types of statements. Once again, I, I would assert because he makes these statements because he understands to some degree the, 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 the sovereignty of God. He has to. It's the only way that you can make statements like this, I think. Absolutely. I mean, let me, um, again, I'll, I promise this will be the last statement. Oh, no, no, no. That's why we're on this together, Dennis. 
I just, I, I think it's so good and it's so, and maybe this is a direct perfect link of where you're going to go with, with Johnson, but he writes uh, later on, he is a human being capable of judging. He's obviously talking about the black man. He's a human being capable of judging between good and evil, right and wrong, liberty and slavery, and is as much a subject of law as any other man. Therefore, deal justly with him. Mm. He is like other men, sensible of the motives of reward and punishment. And here, here's the key. Give him wages for his work and let hunger pinch him if he doesn't work. He knows the difference between fullness and famine, plenty and scarce, uh, scarcity. But will he work? You might ask. I added that part. But why should he not? He is used to it. Uh, he's used to it. His hands are already hardened by toil, and he has no dreams of ever getting a living by any other means than by hard work. Mm. Um I think he he would say something a little different if he was alive today, just saying. <laughs> but would you turn them all Stop loose? It. Certainly. We are not better than our creator. He has turned them loose, and why should not we? But I, I, again, I, I think that's so relevant to where you're going to go with Lyndon B. Johnson and, and the modern mindset, because that is so contrary to the mentality that has developed today, not just in the black culture, Mm-mm. but in no, all, in, in, all. In, in all cultures in many ways of, yeah. we let the government take over. We let the government take care of us. And yeah. I mean, let's just say it how it is. I mean, 2020 was a very clear example of that, of, you yeah. know, when you have people sitting at home on unemployment making more money than they did at work, that's a problem. That, that's, that it is, is a problem. problem. <laughs> it, oh. It's a problem, Dennis. And I, don't, I think people tend to forget that it's, it's a created problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing for um, and Thomas Sowell does a tremendous um, service to us in this particular um, subject, but you know, it's it's one thing for us to assess what's going on in our culture, just in concept of the fall. You know, there's always going to be challenges when you're dealing with a fallen society. What I think a lot of us are trying to do is we're just trying to stop <laughs> it from becoming exponentially worse. So in any event, let me finish up um, the, I mean, the entire article I, I commend to our listeners, um, this entire article that Frederick Douglass wrote is, um, is it's just mind blowing that, that he would write in such simplistic but compelling, such a compelling way, um, in 1860. Now, Last, would you say, would you say that as far as you understand of Frederick uh, of Douglas and just his perspective, would you say that this is kind of, that this was his mentality all along in a sense, like this was, you know, this is not like just some, you know, one time mistake quote unquote no. that he made or something. No, no I, I, I would say it generally um would depict his 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 posture. Um okay. it's it's not exhaustive. I mean he is as I said, he's written a lot and there's a lot that I have not read. Um but 
he definitely this type of concept does come out in other writings of his for sure. So I'm just going to read one more piece of this. He goes on to say, he says, he says, when the planners of the West Indies used to attempt to puzzle the pure-minded Wilberforce, that's that's um, Wilberforce was instrumental in the abolition of slavery in Europe. When the planners of the West Indies used to attempt to puzzle the pure-minded Wilberforce with the question, how shall we get rid of slavery? His simple answer was quit stealing. <laughs> Enlightenment. What a genius. <laughs> it's such a con- such a noble concept. It just might work. <laughs> <laughs> Quit stealing. In like manner, we answer those who are perpetually puzzled, puzzling their brains with questions as to what shall be done with the Negro. Let him alone and mind your own business. And you find this refrain all throughout this article over and over and over again. Now, notice what he did not say. He did not say there was no mention of reparations. Although I would I would say that it would have been understandable for him to approach that subject at that time. Mm-hmm. What I don't in understand. A, <laughs> in a, we we would say in a proper biblical perspective. Absolutely. Of, of reparation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which maybe we'll get into some of that next time when we look at more of just the biblical context of all this. But yeah. 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 And I don't want to be long winded, but I, I'll tell you, I would I would commend to, to those that that may struggle with this particular subject. And I'm not making light of it. Um, but for those that do struggle with this particular subject, I, I definitely would commend it. Ezekiel 18 uh, to you um, to, to, to read through just so that you can see that um, from God's perspective, the, the concept of making those in modern day responsible for the sins of those in centuries gone by is, is not biblical. It just isn't. But I'll I'll leave that alone for now. Um, we may revisit it in 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 times ahead. So I want to switch my um, focus to Linda B. Johnson. But before I do, there's a quote I want to read from one of Thomas Sowell's articles. And and if if you're not familiar with Thomas Sowell's work, be he, familiar, <laughs> man. Um, it's 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 a travesty that this man has been has flown under the radar for so long. Probably one of the the greatest economists that our country has ever seen in the last decade or no century. Nevertheless, his article entitled those people born as Americans are luckiest on earth. I'm sure this is triggering to many. (laughs) This is the article name. He writes this. He says, this is speaking of the slave trade comparatively. He says, he says more whites were brought as slaves to North Africa than blacks brought as slaves to the United States or to the 13 colonies from which it was formed. White slaves were still being bought and sold in the Ottoman Empire decades 
after blacks were freed in the United States. Now, well, it's still going on today. <laughs> that, yeah. That, you know, yeah. If we, if, if we want to take it even further. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I bring this up not for the sake of what aboutism, um, as many I'm sure will accuse, but you know, the, if we fail to understand and accept that slavery was not exclusive to America, we're, we're, we're never going to be able to make sense of the broader implications regarding how we move forward as, as a nation and how we move forward in the church. We just won't be able to do it. The other thing, too, I want to mention just to, as we stick with this this uh, time of uh, of American history is, um, I mean, even even people like um, Robert uh, Dabney, who mm. uh, a reformed a reformed theologian, you know, pastor, scholar who has addressed this issue in in his own writing, one popular a defense of Virginia. Um, and there's a really good, you and I both listened to uh, Gary DeMar, uh, American Vision did a pretty mm-hmm. good, um, pretty good uh, short, short little discussion on this whole issue. And, and, and the only reason why I bring this up is I, we would find issues with how he reasoned through slavery in mm-hmm. arguing for slavery, we would find issues with his logic and his reason. There, there's much to disagree with, but the only reason why I bring that up, bring that up, is a fair reading of history has to acknowledge the fact that these men were not some bloodthirsty black-hating Nazis. <laughs> That just, you know, just wanted to get those blacks and lock them up and make them, you know, throw them to work their fields like that. That just that was not the mentality of the of these men that so often, sadly, today, even in reformed circles, reformed Christian circles. I mean, these men are just being thrown under the bus. I mean, they're being dismissed. I mean. Some have even gone as far. I know you and I have have heard this. Some have even gone as far as to say that, you know, they are more comfortable to say that Martin Luther King Jr. was a was a believer, but Mm. they're not sure about Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, I I mean that. And the only reason is because Edwards had slaves. And, And it's just that that is such a foolish statement <laughs> that uh, any fair reading of what these men stood for you would come to the complete opposite understanding and i and i think and i think that's where we just need to be fair you know you you read douglas you you look at the things that he said and, and it was very helpful Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, you read people like Dabney and the arguments that he made and and some of these uh, George Whitfield and some of the arguments that they made. I mean, we would disagree with their reasoning, but we but they called they agreed that slavery was a sin. Yeah. Racism was a sin that they, they agreed with that. 
Now, how they played that out, again, we can have discussions, we can have disagreements, we can have healthy dialogue there, we can learn from, I mean, they were sinful men <laughs> that made that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We can learn from their mistakes, but I just think the only reason, again, the only reason why I bring that up is there's, there's modern nonsense out there that, that you might hear that just oh, yeah. literally is nonsense. And, and, and we have to approach history fairly. We have to be careful of anachronism mm. and we just have to be fair in, uh, in our reading of, of, of this of these types of men on this issue. Yeah. Dennis, that's, that's, that is, um, I'm glad you stated that what, what I'm finding especially challenging with having discussions with regarding this is that when, when we talk about things in a technical sense, I think a lot of people have a tendency to think that, we don't care or that we're attempting to explain away history and that's that couldn't be further than from from the truth i mean in fact i mean i think this is necessary in order for us to understand it and get to the truth so i i do want to move into um this this section where we address some of the things that lyndon b johnson stated and I want you to keep in the back of your mind as best as you can the the quotes that we just read from Frederick Douglass in the 1860s. Now we're going to move into the 1960s. This is from Lyndon B. Johnson's Howard University commencement address. And I'm just going to read this, and I think that it will become self-explanatory that there's some very important differences in terms of Lyndon Johnson's approach versus Frederick. Dunn. And this is um, just just so we're on the same page. This is him speaking as a president. It is or no, it is. Okay. It, it, okay. Yep. This is him speaking as president in 1965. Okay. Um, and everyone will, many people will recognize this this um, this particular quote. Um, it, it's very uh, common. It is kind of the kind of the hallmark of of his it, it really captures his thought process regarding how to address the challenges of our culture in his day. And it reads, it is the right to be treated in every part of our national life as a person equal in dignity and promise to all others. But freedom is not enough. You do not wipe away the scars and centuries by saying, now you are free to go where you want and do as you desire and choose the leaders you please. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race and then say, you're free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Close quote. So that sounds like a noble idea, um, but in the immortal words of Kanye West, I ask, <laughs> Houseway, <laughs> how do you do that? I mean, how does that work? Um, I mean, and, and this is the foundational concept behind a host of programs that were designed um, to achieve this particular goal. 
he says that freedom is not enough. And I, I know that our audience, there's probably going to be many people that are going to, that will agree with this, that freedom mm-hmm. is not enough. Let me just continue to move through this and then we'll, we'll definitely have much commentary to, um, to unfold. He goes on to say, he says, thus it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. This is the next and more profound stage of the battle for civil rights. We seek not just freedom, but opportunity. We seek not just legal equity, but human ability, not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. Johnson was doing fine, in my humble opinion, until we got to the point where we're looking at equality as a result. That's, first of all, it's it's impossible. <laughs> um, you, you, you cannot hold out the goal of making equality as a, as a result um, without causing much damage to many in order to achieve that. It's, I mean, it's just not possible. He goes on to say, for what is justice? It is to fulfill the fair expectations of man. So you start to see, although somewhat subtly, um, depends on who's reading it, I guess, you start to see that Lyndon B. Johnson has a very different vehicle by which people are treated with dignity. You start to see that his concept of human dignity is for each and every person um, to end up at the same station in life. And although that sounds like a noble idea, it's unreasonable at best and downright unbiblical at its worst. And I think that's what we're seeing in our uh, society right now. Any comments? Yeah, and I would just like, I would, yeah, I would just like to say that even if, even if that was your goal, let, let's say that that that's your goal, and that's what we're going to try to to get. the The huge question that still must be asked is by who, by whom, mm-hmm. who should be doing that? Is it the government that should be doing that? Or is it the humanity as a whole, human beings prospering and and making it happen based on the 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 situations and opportunities and all of that that has been given and and you know and put in place, you know it and that's really the key, even if even if we are to give give him that 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 argument sure again you know i'm repeating myself but again the big phrase that needs to be asked is well is that your job as the president of the united states is is that your job yeah Yeah. to bring that about absolutely because i think yeah because that that alone brings in the big distinction between what we read about from um, from Douglas and uh, and this, 
Yeah. And, and Dennis, I, I think even principally, um, there's a problem because <clears throat> our, the way that our culture is set up, and I will even go as far as to say the way that God intended is that we are to work with our hands. We are to work, and our work is rewarded, although in a fallen concept, but it's rewarded in proportion to how we work, <laughs> the, the effort that we put in, the, the, all of these various factors that determine um, outcomes. We're responsible for those. We're responsible as individuals, as business owners, as parents, as, I mean, the whole world is set up where there's a, a law of sorts where if we sow <laughs> in, a, in a manner that, that um, gives glory to God, um, the potential for success, if you will, and to not to make it too crude of a of a concept, but success comes from each person applying themselves based on what God gives you in, in terms of gifting, etc. Um, but that doesn't mean that every person is going to have equal results. Absolutely. I mean, and we even see that in scripture, right? I mean, you're, if you've been, if you've been placed in a context of wealth, whether by your own doing or the doing of, you know, your, your parents or, or whatever, whatever the, 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 the situation might be, scripture speaks very clearly on your responsibilities mm. and, uh, and what God has called you to do. And, and even God's law, even God's law addresses issues like that. If we look at the Mosaic Absolutely. law, I mean, it talks about, you know, when, when you go out and, 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 uh, and, and harvest, you, you leave part of your harvest for those who exactly. might not be in a, you know, as wealthy as you or in a, in a situation like you, or, you know, there is a level of, just God ordained principles at play that that should be a play in a proper society and context um, to to help the the prosper of society as a whole. And uh, but again, it is not the government's job, it's <laughs> and, not. and that's really the key here. It is not their job to create more and more institutions and administrations and you name it to, you know, correct the inequalities in no, our culture. Absolutely not. Um, I'm just going to, I want to close with, with something that Thomas Sowell um, wrote in his book, A Conflict of Visions, um, which is another excellent read. In that particular book, he presents, he presents, the, the main thesis of the book is, um, that we have a culture that looks at the looks at society through two basic visions. One is the constrained vision, and one is referred to as the unconstrained vision. So here, here's a quote, and I believe this is I, I don't believe that 
soul is a a Christian, but this particular concept most certainly is found in scripture. A constrained vision is is that it sees the evils of the world as deriving from the limited and unhappy choices available, given the inherent moral and intellectual limitations of human beings. Now, I'll explain that in a moment. The unconstrained vision, as um, Rousseau states it, says that man is born free, but everywhere in chains. And the point that he's making is, um, in the unconstrained vision, is that the fundamental problem is not nature, but it's man and institutions that holds him back. So here's the point that I want to make here. Um, On one side, on the constrained vision side, we acknowledge, and I'm going to bring in the, the, the biblical concept here, we acknowledge that the world is fallen. And because the world is fallen, there are a, there are limited solutions to complex problems in the world in which we live. In other words, we're not going to solve all of the problems that we find ourselves um, engaged in in this life, in this world, because the world is fallen. It's it, the 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 unconstrained vision basically states, well. We can solve all the problems. We just have to we just have to have the government do our bidding. We just have to have we just have to put these systems. We have to fix the systems. And if we fix the systems, then we can we can solve um, all of all of what ails us. And I, I I think that the point that Thomas Sowell is making here is that and he even states it this way, he says, there's no such thing technically as a solution, only trade-offs. And what he's basically saying there is that there's certain problems that we're never going to be able to resolve to the satisfaction of us as human beings. Because all of those particular or potential solutions have trade-offs. So when we see what's taking place in our our society and we see you know the situations with 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 crime and the situations with policing and the situations with inequities or disparities um in in culture understand that it's not it's, it's like you were saying Dennis it's not that the government can just kind of step into the fray of that and just start tinkering with the machine and it gets fixed. It just doesn't work that way because we are living in a fallen world. We are living in a world where there are going to be, there are going to be issues that, that we are not going to be able to solve as a society. I know that sounds negative, but it's realistic. So with that said, I think we've 
gone quite a bit. Dennis, any closing remarks you want to make? Um, I think we covered a lot. Uh, I think we covered a lot. I obviously we didn't go into a whole lot of details and I'm sure there's much, much left unsaid. I mean, there's much more historical analysis that needs to be done and, um, we're not in any way, um, claiming to be experts on that. And I think much, no. much has been written, some good, some bad, some unfair, some fair. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we, we obviously encourage our, our listeners to, um, to do their own research and do their own study and read good resources. Um, I think there's much, much good that that's, um, that's been put out. Um, um, I actually just, I just found out that I, uh, I think Vody Bauckham put out a book. Yeah, he did on, yeah. on this issue. Um, yeah. Uh, just this year and that uh um i didn't get a chance to really go into it or anything but um but uh um yeah so the point is i think there's many there's good resources out there there's good good stuff there that uh we encourage everyone to to dive into and 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 learn and um but we we wanted just to lay the big picture and I think lay the groundwork to help us think through this in a, in a more fair and balanced uh, way that on the one hand recognizes the clear sins um, uh, of, of this, the historical sins on this issue of this country and, and the ongoing effects of that. But at the same time, um, recognizing that critical race theory is not the solution. Um, yeah, there's a whole series of <laughs> there's a whole series of data that I was going to share. Maybe we might do that on an, another session. That kind of just bears out the the fact that yeah, we may need to to choose another path. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The critical race theory. Yeah. Well, and to some degree, you know, I, I really do think it's a it's a self-destructive ideology, just like so much of the modern anti-Christian movements that that are that are happening, um, whether it be in the LGD, LGBTQ arena or, you know, I, I think there's many of these ideologies are self-destructive um, because they don't, they, they don't bring any real solutions. They just bring division and that's not going to last for, <laughs> no, uh, no, not at all. It might get ugly before it gets, uh, before it gets good. <laughs> any but, better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank, well, thank you. you so much for joining us. Um, I think this uh, will continue to keep the discussion going. I think the plan is to do two more sessions on this. Um, next time we want to tackle more of just uh, some of the biblical principles, biblical passages that, that come and play on this issue. Again, we're not going to do any kind of exhaustive study, but um, just kind of a, a rough overview of the biblical principles at play. And then we'll probably, the goal at least is to then do another session after that, and just finish out with applicational discussions and 
um, and things like that. So we, we look forward to that and, and we look forward to, um, to you guys joining us for those discussions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us and, um, we look forward to our next time together, um, on the people of the covenant podcast. POC. God bless. God bless. <laughs>